tonight's uh, reading, we are in uh, Galatians chapter 2, and we're reading from verses 11 to 21. That can be found in your Blue Bibles at page 1169. So that's page 1169, and we're in Galatians chapter 2, reading from verse 11. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We, who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. This is God's word. Cheers, Ed. Please keep open uh, the Bible in front of you. I think it will help you a lot this evening. Let's pray together as we begin. All Scripture is God-breathed and useful. And we pray, Lord uh, and God, that we would receive your word, uh, your words as your word this evening to us. And we pray that we would know how to respond to it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This is a remarkable account. Imagine if uh, Andrew and I in the middle of the service, uh, service suddenly started rebuking one another in, in front of uh, you all. Uh, and we're just two leaders in a local church. Paul and Peter are apostles, two of the greatest figures in the whole of church history, having a Barney in front of everybody. It's an extraordinary account Now, you might be one of those tiresome people who likes to have a a fight, 
but most of us hate confrontation. Uh, last uh, week, uh, I had a meal out, and I think I counted, because I do, uh, 13 chips, around about 33 peas, and seven bits of dry scampi, uh, all overdone, and no tartar sauce um, anywhere to be seen. Uh, and what did I say when the waiter came round and asked if everything was okay? Exactly what you would have said. Absolutely fine, no problems. Most of us hate confrontation. But in case you're thinking that Paul is one of those uh, tiresome troublemakers, always up for a fight, let me tell you that the reason that this often tender-hearted apostle goes into the fray is that he sees that what's at stake is the truth of the gospel. Far from causing disunity, he confronts Peter for the sake of unity. And it's worth our time, I think, thinking about this uh, this evening, um, because often people do ask us that question, why do there have to be divisions among Christians? Why are there Anglicans and Baptists and Charismatics and Pentecostals as, and Presbyterians and all, all the rest of them? And, and the answer revolves around that phrase that we, uh, I just mentioned, that we saw last week in verse 5 of chapter 2 and crops up again in verse 14 of chapter 2, the truth of the gospel. Chapter 2 is a story of two journeys. Verses 1 to 10, it's Paul's journey to Jerusalem, uh, the capital of Jewish Christianity, and uh, it turned out to be a real triumph for Christian unity. Paul explained his law-free gospel, and the other apostles gave him the right hand of fellowship. And so they agreed that there wasn't a Pauline gospel and a Petrine gospel, but one apostolic gospel for all, which is wonderful, of course, because it means that there's access for anyone and everyone into the family of God, based upon one thing and one thing only, faith in Jesus Christ. But there's a second journey in chapter 2. It's the one we come to this evening in verses 11 following. Peter's journey to Antioch, the capital of Gentile, non-Jewish Christianity. And Peter, we're told, used to have no qualms about eating with Gentile Christians. He set aside any Jewish scruples that he might have and indulged in kosher food. And he refuses to build a wall of division and eats with Gentiles, though he is a Jew. So one church, Jew and Gentile, united together. Well, then, if Paul and Peter agree on the truth of the gospel, why this public spat? Well, we're going to see, first of all, why Paul feels he needs to defend the gospel. And then later, we're going to see Paul's definition of what the truth of the gospel actually is. So let's begin with the truth of the gospel defended. And let's look at the clash, its cause, 
and its consequence. So verse 11, the clash. When Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. There's the clash. What was the cause? Verse 12. Peter had begun to draw back and separate himself from the Gentile Christians. Uh, Gradually, uh, sneakily, perhaps the original language suggests, perhaps with some embarrassment, he starts declining lunch invitations with Gentiles and only receive lunch invitations from other Jewish Christians. What motivates him to do that? Well, clearly there's a fear factor involved. Peter was afraid of the circumcision group. Now, it's really difficult to unpick the situation of exactly what's going on in verse 12. But on the basis that Peter wasn't a dimwit who suddenly forgot um, that it was okay to eat with uh, Gentiles. After all, if you remember, he heard Jesus declare all foods clean. And then you remember perhaps in Acts uh, chapter 10, he received this vision with uh, a sheet that came down from heaven, and on it was kind of like a zoo of animals, clean and unclean. And, and the Lord said to him, Peter, get up, kill, and eat. Three times, get up, kill, and eat, as one for the vegetarians to ponder. And then in Acts chapter 11, when he reports that to the, to the Jerusalem church, they agree that God has broken down that wall of division between Jew and Gentile. In other words, the Jerusalem church have already made a decision and decided on the very issue of eating with Jews, Jews eating with Gentiles. They've already decided the issue. So it seems highly unlikely that Peter was a dimwit who forgot this or was just a bit scaredy cat over it all. After all, it's not long since he preached um, those courageous sermons in Jerusalem in Acts chapters 2 and 3, and not long before he wonderfully and boldly confronted the Jewish Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5. He's neither a dimwit nor a scaredy cat. A more likely reconstruction to my mind is this. There are four stages. Stage one, Peter was eating with the Gentile Christians. Stage two, a delegation from James arrives and says, Dear Peter, news of your practice has reached us back here in Jerusalem. And the circumcision group, who are non-Christian Jews, are using it to stir up opposition. They're saying that you don't really... You Christians don't really care about the law. You don't really care about our Jewish heritage. You're ruining everything. And the result is it's stirring up persecution for us back there in Jerusalem. Any chance you could keep it kosher for a bit until they turn down the heat? Now that sounds like a much more likely scenario to me. In which case, Paul isn't, uh, Peter, sorry, isn't fearing for himself. 
he's fearing for uh, what the circumcision group might do to his fellow Jewish believers back in Jerusalem. So his motives are for separating are good, even compassionate. Stage three, as a result of that, he starts to draw back from eating with the Gentile Christians. And stage four, Paul sees this and opposes Peter to his face and accuses him of hypocrisy. Peter, he says, you know that you enjoy a good pork chop. How come you're returning now to your old Jewish scruples? Now, a few notes here. Paul doesn't accuse Peter of heresy, but of hypocrisy, of contradicting his own convictions, what he already knew to be true. Paul and Peter believe the same things. Peter, uh, Paul's beef is with Peter's conduct. Now, before the confrontation, Paul may well have tried to meet Peter privately. But Peter's offence was a public one, and so it had to be dealt with publicly. More so because Peter was a leader. His actions affected others. And that's why the New Testament says that uh, if it's established, um, that that if a leader falls into sin... They should be rebuked publicly. None of us, of course, sins in isolation. Our our sins always impact those around us. And that's especially true when leaders sin. It was certainly true when Peter sinned. There were consequences. And those consequences show us why his action was sinful. So verse 13, there are the consequences. Ultimately, in fact, a church split if it continued. So Paul saw that Peter's actions were affecting other Christians, other Jews, and even Barnabas followed suit. By force of example, Peter's actions were creating two churches, undoing Christ's work, splitting Christ's church into two. And that tends to happen when somebody adds to the truth of the gospel. If anything is added to the gospel core, then disunity results. So if you insist that you have to worship in a particular type of way, that you must use a particular Bible translation, that you must have robes and liturgy or not, that you, there must be hand-waving that the person must preach in a certain way or practice spiritual gifts or baptism in a certain way. If we insist on those things as essential, then we split the church because we create first-class Christians who do what we think is right and insist upon and second-class Christians who don't. The point isn't that these things are necessarily wrong in themselves, The point is that if we insist on practices which are not core gospel, we divide God's church. 
Now, I've given some of the more obvious examples because I can't spot the less obvious ones. It's extremely difficult to spot these things. After all, even the great apostle Peter came unstuck here. But perhaps over coffee, between us, we can begin to have that discussion. What are the things which are non-core gospel that Christ Church Banstead is insisting upon, or perhaps beginning to insist upon, that divides us? Wrong uh, divisions also occur, of course, when people insist upon views uh, which are disputable. The place of Israel... The end times, Sabbath, baptism. Christians have disagreed on these things for centuries. They are disputable. That, of course, doesn't mean that everyone's opinion is valid. Some people are right and some people are wrong. But these disputable things are not core things. The truth of the gospel, however is something that has been made clear from the time of Jesus and the apostles. And Paul sees that core gospel must be defended at all costs. Nothing is more important. Even if it causes relational friction, even as in the case in this situation, if it means that other Christians get persecuted. Nothing is more important than the gospel. Apostolic Christianity will always uh, contain some element of confrontation and correction. Now, some preachers, all they do is condemn others, and uh, such unbalanced preaching will never edify God's church. But a preacher who never corrects, who never spells out the negatives, who never says Jesus is the way and there is no other way, well, we can be sure that that preacher has departed from apostolic Christianity. Very well, all this uh, begs the question, doesn't it? What is the core? What is the truth of the gospel that Paul is defending. Because if we're not clear on the gospel core, how on earth are we supposed to defend it? We don't know what we're supposed to be defending. And so Paul goes on to define for us the truth of the gospel defined secondly. From from verse 15, Paul is rationalizing his rebuke of Peter. And in the midst of his ra- uh, rationale, he elaborates for us the truth of the gospel. And uh, he does it in three bar- paragraphs, three parts, a definition, a defense, and a description. We're going to have to think hard as we come through this. First, verses 15 to 16, he defines the gospel core as justification by faith alone. He says, Peter, I'm rebuking you because your actions violate the cardinal doctrine of Christianity, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, justification is a word from the law court. It 
may help uh, to think of it in terms of its opposite, which is condemnation. And justification means to be declared right in the right with God, to be righteous. Now, when someone is justified, it doesn't mean that they are made righteous. It means that God reckons them or counts them as if they were righteous. But on what basis is somebody justified? When the great day of judgment comes and we stand before God, you see, there's no important issue, more important issue that we can be thinking about this evening. On what basis will God say we are right with him? Well, Paul is so keen that we're clear on this. He tells us the basis on which we can be justified, and he also tells us the basis on which we cannot be justified, can never be justified. So let's follow his argument, which begins in verse 15. We who are Jews by birth, that's me and you, Peter, and not sinful Gentiles... Now, he's saying, look, look, Peter, we, we Christians, born Jews, we had the law, we had the, the covenants, we had the, the promises of God, the temple. Uh, unlike the Gentiles, who were foreigners to the covenant, they were outsiders, born without hope in the world, the Gentile sinners, in inverted commas, perhaps. Even we, even we know that a person isn't justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Three times here, Paul tells us that God's way is faith in Jesus Christ and not the law. So the first statement is a general one. It's a general statement. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's general. The second one is personal. We too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And then, just so we get it, he puts it in a universal uh, way. Third statement is universal because by the works of the law, No one will be justified. There are a few places in the Bible where something is repeated three times. This is one of them. Shows how important it is. Whether you're talking about Jewish works of the law, like circumcision or food food laws or Sabbath or whatever, or whether you're just talking about works in general, human works, doing good, They cannot be a basis for justification. Works are not a ladder to God. Anyone who climbs that ladder on the day of judgment will find that it is a dead end. Even the best of us cannot climb our way into the presence of a holy God. The only way is through faith in Jesus Christ and his death for us. But says an imaginary somebody. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? And here we move into the second paragraph. 
from the definition to the defense of justification in verse 17. Promote sin how? Because following Christ leads to Jews and Gentiles mixing, which breaks the Old Testament law. Absolutely not, says Paul. Because if you go back on my law-free gospel and you have Christ plus law, Christ plus kosher foods, then you are obligated to keep the whole of the law. Paul will explain this more later on in Galatians. And if you're obligated to keep the whole of the law, well, you know you can't do it. So that really does make you a lawbreaker. See, that really is a serious mistake. Because the law ladder is a dead end. It is spiritual suicide. So do we see um, Paul's rationale for rebuking Peter? Going back to the law is tantamount to spiritual suicide. So having defined and defended, he now goes on in verses 17 to 21 to more fully describe justification. And what we have here is a summary, a pricey, really a a highly compressed uh, description. And it's one uh, that the rest of Galatians is going to unpack. But um, they're wonderful words. Let me read from verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, or better actually, Christ lives with respect to me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul understands that Christ's death is his death that Christ's life is his life, that a great exchange has taken place. The law which condemned me, he says, condemned Christ instead. And the perfect life that Christ lived is credited to me, as there's been a great exchange. Christ dies for me, Christ lives for me. And so if you have faith in Jesus Christ on Judgment Day, God will see, what will he see when he looks at you? Christ. He will see Christ's life. And he will acquit you. And that is why Paul says, I live not by works, but by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself for me. I don't often quote Karl Barth, um, but today I'm going to make an exception to that. Karl Barth, if you don't know, wrote an absolutely mahusive uh, four-volume uh, systematic theology. And uh, towards the end of his life, he was asked the question, um, Dr. Barth, I think that's what he was, rather than professor or something, what do you think is the most profound thing that you've ever learned. And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. 
And that's right. You know, however long you live, whatever you learn, that is the most profound thing you will ever come across. Jesus loves me, this I know, because the Bible tells me so. And God's love is seen, just look at this verse, because of who loved us. It was the Son of God who loved us. And because who was loved, it was us, us sinners, us lawbreakers. And because of how we were loved, he gave himself for us on the cross. And the more we see the love that we've been shown, the more we will stand up for the truth of the gospel. You see, what Paul has done is he has detached himself from Judaism as a way of salvation, and he has reattached himself to a person, to the Son of God. Christ who loved him. It's what all Christians have done. And for him, it was really personal. Paul rejected the law as a ladder to climb, and he put his faith in the one who has come down and loved him. Have we done that? Have you done that? Going back to the law, and here's really the point of verse 21, is to spit on the cross of Christ. It is to say, Jesus, your death was unnecessary. I could have done it myself, you know. Jesus, thanks for the thought. You'll be glad to hear it wasn't needed after all. Jesus, you died for nothing. Of course, most of us wouldn't dream of saying that. And yet even we who have put our faith in Christ so easily fall into hypocritical living and act as if we are justified by our works and deeds. The New Testament scholar Don Carson, I'm going to paraphrase him, um, says this. He says, suppose you wake up one day and it's, it's a miserable day. You know it's going to be one of those days and there's clouds and there's rain, it's cold. The alarm didn't work, so you're late, uh, your spouse is grumpy, uh, you don't have time for breakfast, so you just grab a, a sip of orange juice and you rush out to the car, put your key in the ignition, turn it, nothing, because you've forgotten that the battery had gone, gone flat. And you know um, you're going to be in trouble when you get to work, and when you get to work, you're bawled out by, by your boss as you expected. And later in the day, the boss comes to you and says, you know, there's, there's going to be a bit of restructuring going on, and it may just be that you lose uh, your job. Well, later in the day, uh, you go to grab um, a cup of coffee, and, and as you're chatting to one of your colleagues, they ask uh, something about Christianity. But because of everything that's going on, you kind of, you ball them out, really, and um, you just ignore them and uh, walk off. Then you go, go home, and when you get there, there's a note on the table. It says, um, there's some lasagna in the fridge left over from, from yesterday. Have it if you want. And that night, when you get, to, get down to pray, it sounds a little bit like this. Dear Heavenly Father, this has been a rotten day. I haven't reacted very well. I'm sorry. But it has been a rotten day. I'm sorry. I will try and do better tomorrow. Bless everybody in 
Jesus' name, amen. Now, am I the only person who's had a day like that before? Then there are other days where you've had a good night's sleep. And you wake up and the birds are singing and uh, the sun is out, the air is fresh and clean. You breathe in and you smell fresh bacon being cooked, a wonderful breakfast is being prepared. And you stroll out to the car, put the key in, vroom, go straight away to work. You arrive early, the boss notices uh, your promptness, commends you says, you know, there's going to be a a bit of a restructuring going on. I'd love you, uh, if you would, to take on managing uh, the division. There'll be a big pay rise, and you think, yes, Lord. And then that uh, poor sucker that you clobbered last time, you meet them for coffee again in the afternoon, and they, they get up the courage to ask you a question once more, and this time you, you answer with grace and humility And by the end of the conversation, you've invited them to come along on Sunday and they've promised to come along and bring their family too. You get that home that night, there's a wonderful meal waiting for you and uh, you go to bed that night and the prayer sounds like this. Eternal and majestic Heavenly Father, in the fullness of your grace, I bow before you at the end of this day And thank you for your magnificence and your majesty of all your faithful blessings that you've showered upon me, your humble servant. And pretty soon you're into the doctrine of the cross, redemption and and reconciliation. You're praying for people at the church. You're praying for all of the ministries of the church. You're praying for for the gospel, all of our missionaries and their families and their cousins twice removed. And on and on and on. And pretty soon you go to bed justified. And we have been an utter hypocrite both times. Why? Because we've had the temerity to think that our relationship with a holy God depends upon what sort of day we've had. Can anything be more dismissive of God's grace? More degrading of Christ's love more destructive of justification. It is spitting on the cross of Christ. And we do it all the time. The truth of the gospel, justification by faith alone, is not some abstract doctrine for theological boffins. It's everything. Because we know that a person is justified not by the works of the law, not by our best days, not even by our most sincere repentance, but by faith in Jesus Christ alone. And that is worth fighting for. It is the only basis for Christian unity. It is the only basis for any confidence at the judgment. And everything else is a dead end. Let's pray. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Our Father, if you have opened our eyes to see that, we pray we will rejoice in it, 
we would cling on to it, and where necessary, we would defend it. And for those of us who are struggling to get our heads around it, we pray that your Spirit would open up their eyes so that they too might join us and rejoice this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.